Still good to go. I want to welcome you if you're visiting with us. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 2. Actually, we have one last verse in Malachi chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers have plenty of extras. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. And I want you to know that part of our service is always devoted to reading the Bible and seeing what God says. A.W. Tozer once said this, people who come to right beliefs about God will save themselves from thousands of problems. I really like that because many of our problems ultimately come down to our wrong beliefs about God and about life and about ourselves. And so one of the things that the Bible is so helpful for is that it tells us the truth. And the Bible says the truth will set you free. Now, interestingly, the truth at times can be painful but helpful. In fact, one of the marks of a, of, a, of a person who wants the truth is that they receive correction. The Bible says wise people receive correction. Fools mock and scoff when you try to point something out. So in Malachi, we've been talking about the fact that their vibrant faith had deteriorated into an empty religion. Probably a lot of the people that were a part of the covenant community weren't even believers. But even those who were the believers had really just distorted views about God. They had become cold in their faith, and they were saying things about God and about one another and doing things that were completely opposite of what God's plan for them was. So in this book, Malachi has six disputations where he meets with them and asks them questions. The first one, he says, I have loved you, and and they always would answer, well, how have you loved us? And he explained his love. And then he said to the priest, you're not honoring me. And they're like, how are we not honoring you? And then we saw last week when he said, you've been dealing treacherously. And they're like, 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 what are you talking about? He goes, because you're divorcing your spouses for no reason. You're marrying other people. You don't realize that God has given us families to raise up godly seed. Well, now he's going to come to the next disputation where he's going to challenge them with the things that they're saying about God. And we've all probably said things about God that we wish we didn't say. Some of us have thoughts about God that we might not even tell other people. We might be mad at him. We might be sad. We might disagree with him. We might not even believe in him. But sometimes it's so good to listen to other people and see how they're interacting. And this passage is going to show us how their attitude started. I want to read verse 17 and then we'll pray. So in chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi says to the people, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, anytime someone says to that, says, you're wearing me down, right? Your pa- kid, you remember that when your parents said that? I mean, even as adults, you're wearing me down here with your words, okay? It's not a good sign. And yet, they seem clueless. They said, how? How have we wearied you? And notice what God says. Well, here's what wearies me. Because this is what you've been saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, now that's that's pretty nasty, right? That would be pretty wrong to go around and teach your children. Children, God likes when you're bad. He wants you to lie and do bad things. In fact, he loves people like that. You'd be like, wow, that's shocking, right? And then secondly, he says, or another thing that wears me down is when you say, Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? Now, that's a really profound question, and actually, that's an age-old question that people have been asking throughout history, right? And if you're a Christian, you should be prepared to answer that because people want to know, 
if there's a God, why are all these bad things happening and he's letting people get away with it, right? So then they'll come to wrong conclusions. Either he doesn't love people, he doesn't care, or he's not strong enough to do anything about it. So those of you that are interested in exploring this, you can go online and look up the word theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. That, that term was coined by a fellow in the 1700s, and a theodicy is basically a defense of God's existence and trying to explain how God can exist and still allow evil. So this passage, we're not gonna take the time to go through that, we're just simply gonna say, hey, it's not like people haven't been asking this question for years. Where's this good God? And if people are murdering and, and cruel things and people are you know, blowing people up, why isn't he coming down there and just stopping it? So ironically, God's answer is not at all what they expected. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll read. Father, thank you that when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to our hearts. So take this passage and help us to be open to what you want to say to us today. Thank you that the Bible has this living, mysterious way of completely changing our outlook. And I pray that you will open the eyes of our visitors as well as our maturest believers, myself as well. I need to hear this passage and I need to grow and learn from it. So powerfully transform our church, Lord, that we can continue to grow and fight the good fight of faith, reaching our community for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so basically, the, the idea of where is this God came from the fact that all the prophets had been telling them throughout the Old Testament, God is coming, God is coming, and when he comes, he's going to bless your people. When he's coming, he's going to defeat your enemies. And they had just basically said, he must not be coming. So look at God's answer. You want to know where is this God of justice? Remember, when the Bible was written, they didn't have chapter breaks. So don't look at the chapter break. This is all one discussion. Where is God of justice? God's like, did you just ask, where am I? Verse one, behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. So they go, where's God's coming? And he goes, you want to know where his coming is? He's coming. Now this was written somewhere probably in the 400s BC, okay? So they're like, why isn't he here right now? And he's like, well, don't confuse my patience with his absence. It's because he hasn't come yet. He is coming. But now God gives some additional revelation. He says, I'm going to send my messenger to clear the way before me. Now they would have understood this because back then, Whenever a king was going to visit a city, he would send out what they would call forerunners to prepare for his coming. Much like, you know, if you're like, give me an example. You think that's happening with the Pope's visit? There's all kinds of issues with security. And back then, it could be as simple as this, just travel. You know, those of you who have traveled in third world countries, you're like, man, we, we were driving along and the next thing you know, our, our whole truck fell in a pothole. So, so they would... They would make smooth the roads. They would clear out any rough hills because a king is not fit to go through all of this rough travel. But they would also remove any obstacles, whether it's opponents or opposition or people who are going to picket, you know, so to speak. They didn't do it exactly back then. 
but the forerunner would come to prepare people for the coming of the king so that when he got there, things didn't get ugly, right? So, so God says, I'm going to send my messenger and he'll clear the way before me. Now, we actually know who this is. This is John the Baptist. And the reason we know it's John the Baptist is because the Gospels quote this. In fact, Mark chapter 1 says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Behold, I send my messenger. And then Mark also quotes from Isaiah, a voice crying in the wilderness. So we can identify that. But then he says this, okay, I'm going to send my messenger and he'll prepare my way. But then he says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now we know then that that has to be Jesus. But the question, what what does that mean when it says he will suddenly come to his temple? Well, this is where some Bible teachers have two views. Some people believe that this is talking about the second coming of Jesus when he returns at the end of the world to judge all of the living and the dead. Others, including myself, I go, no, he's not talking about when Jesus comes a second time. This is Christmas. This is when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so when Jesus came walking in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, presenting himself as the Messiah, this would have been the fulfillment. You're seeking the Lord? Here he is. Now notice in passing what he says about this Lord whom you seek. He says, he is the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And you go, well, what does that add to it? Because when he says, I'll send my messenger, that's John the Baptist. But then he says, I'm sending the Lord, and he's the messenger of the covenant. And we go, well, what is that talking about? Well, think back to the life of Jesus. God had made a promise in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. He said, in the last days, I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel. And this covenant is not going to be like the Old Testament covenant, this, this, this vow and treaty between my people. This new covenant, he says, I will write my law on their heart, and I will forgive all of their sins. And so remember on, on communion Sunday or Friday night or Thursday night before Christ was crucified, he holds up the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. So God's answering the question, you want to know when I'm coming? I'm coming through my son to fulfill my covenant of a sacrifice so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And this is why when people go, how do you know the Bible is the word of God? I go, well, this was written 400 BC. Nobody can debate that. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been discovered. That prove it was written way before the time of Christ. Prophecies like this have been fulfilled. So when people say, ah, you don't have to believe the Bible, I'm like, you don't have to, but you'd be kind of dumb not to because you better be ready for what's coming. So at this point, perhaps they were like, well, good, God needs to get down here and put a beat down, open a can of whoop, and stop all these enemies of ours from messing with us. And God goes, you know, I want you to rethink something. When I come, the last thing you need to be worried about is somebody else. You need to think about what it's going to be like when I meet you face to face. So look what he says in verse 2. They're like, good, he's coming. And God asks, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? I mean, think about that. If the Lord Jesus Christ came rushing into this room in all of his power and glory, 
Would we be like, yo, Jesus, give me a pound. How's it going, man? You're the bomb. In fact, I often think of the song, will I dance for you, Jesus? Will I be able to, to stand at all? And, I, and I'm going, no, you won't dance. I can assure you when Jesus comes back, we probably won't be dancing at first, okay? So, well, what does he mean by this? He says, well, listen, when God comes back, he's not coming back like Michael Jackson in a little smoking, whirling thing to land on a stage and say, I'm here. But rather, look what he says. He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now, there's two things they have in common. A refiner's fire is really hot. I mean, that sucker gets hot. You, back then, they, they knew how to, to mine ore, and they knew where, where gold was in the ore, but they also knew there was dross in there. The only way to separate it was to put it in a pot and heat that sucker to an intense heat until the gold and the ore melted, and the ore would flow to the surface, and they would skim off the ore, and they would have pure gold. And then fuller soap is not dial soap, it's not dove soap, it's not mild soap. Fuller soap was actually alkali, or what we would call lye soap, L-I-E. And they had a, a powdered form of it that, that would burn you, okay? So they would put it in water and they would soak their clothes in there. So, so the imagery, when the, Lord when the Lord returns, right, when he comes to meet with you, He's not going to come to give high fives. He's coming in flames and purifying passion. Now, right away, that would make me go, whoa, I need to rethink, you know, what's it going to be like when I stand before God? I would have been afraid that he would have said at this point, and he's going to burn all you wicked people up for your wickedness. But instead, he doesn't say that. Look what he says about Jesus. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness now a couple things we need to talk about what does he mean by the sons of Levi because some people go oh he's just talking about how he's come and going to purify the priests because remember we saw in chapter 1 that the spiritual leaders were out of whack and others would say, no, this is talking about at his second coming. And I'm going, no, this is talking about why Jesus came. Jesus came to refine believers, okay? This isn't the only reason he came. The first thing he came to do was to forgive us. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him should be saved. This is a faithful saying, the Bible says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So no matter how sinful you and I are, Christ forgives us, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just go, here's your hell insurance, you're forgiven. Notice what it says. He sits as a smelter and he purifies us. Now, just the process of smelting was a, took a long time. It wasn't like, I'll be back in 10 minutes and I gotta go smelt some gold. So, so picture Jesus even today, as you read the book of Revelation, you sort of see this imagery of him purifying the church right? And working in our lives to remove impurities. And just like back then, to remove impurities included putting the heat on. Do you see the imagery here? That the Lord Jesus is wanting to change us more and more like him. So if I have a selfish attitude or a proud heart 
or a hateful spirit or I'm giving in to my lusts if I'm going out getting drunk or I'm being sexually unfaithful or I'm ignoring God or I'm just caught up in the world and I don't have my priorities straight, Jesus doesn't smack his children to judge them. He sits and he purifies them. Why? Look at verse 3. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's a really cool thing to think about. See, the Christian life is a giant thank you note to God. Jesus, you died for me. Thank you. What wonderful news it is to find out that God loves you just like you are. You don't have to change yourself to be accepted. But that's only half the message if we just tell people, God loves you just as you are. We need to continue to say, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So one of the things that he's doing is he's changing us so that we can be pleasing to the Lord, right? So he might change your music. He might change your entertainment. He might change your attitude. He might meddle with your marriage. He might meddle with your finances. He might meddle with your Facebook. Jesus is working in our lives because he wants to change us to become like him. And you go, oh, well, so he just wants us to bring an offering to the Lord? And I go, yeah. And guess what his favorite offering is? You. You're like, where do you get that from? Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, since he had mercy on us, to present your bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. It's your reasonable service of worship. So don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed as, as you're renewing your mind so that you can learn what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. So, so we see here this imagery. That's why Jesus came. So when people go, oh, I don't need to go to church and I don't need to read the Bible, I'm going, what are you talking about? We're Christians. We need to hear and understand what God's doing, right? So when bad things happen, I don't go, why are you doing this? I might go, ooh, he might be smelting me a little bit. He might be rubbing off some rough edges. We like when he does that to our spouse or others. It's a little more uncomfortable when he's doing it to us. However... Beginning in verse 5, what I see then is that verses 3 and 4 are what he's going to do with his people. Verse 5 is what's going to happen to unbelievers. Notice the phrase, then I will draw near to you for judgment, right? So for the believers, he purifies those saints who are already forgiven. Now listen, you really got to get this down because there's too many churches that are teaching this. You get to heaven by purifying yourself and being good. It is not what the Bible teaches. You get your heart purified by the single soul sacrifice of Christ. Read the book of Hebrews. Contrast the priesthood, and I would even compare it in some ways to um, the Roman Catholicism idea that you have to perform and do things to earn sacraments. And, and, I, and I in no way am trying to insult or put anybody down. And if you're from a Roman Catholic background, we welcome you here. We have hundreds of people who come to study with us. But there are points of difference. The book of Hebrews says this. There's no need for purgatory. There's no need to, to, to have priests ministering because it says, this man, 
after he had made one sacrifice for sin, purged us from all of our sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So that's a blessing. I don't have to try to purify myself. I look to Christ, and he cleanses me completely. But now that I'm a Christian, I'm working that out in my life, but I'm not doing that hoping I'll get to heaven. I'm doing that because I'm forgiven, and I want to cooperate with Christ and be pleasing to him. Does that make sense? Now, at the same time, there are a lot of people who go, well, I don't want to do that. That born-again stuff is not for me. And beside that, I don't even know if there is a God, so I'm going to just do what I want. Well, look at verse 5. God says, then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness. And you know, your friends can say, I don't believe in hell, or God's not going to want me in hell because I'll sell air conditioners and ice cream. And people joke about it, and they can live in denial, and they can just revel in their sins. But, but this is God's word. I'm coming, and I will be a swift witness. And I think now he's talking about the second coming. And he says, and if you're a sorcerer, I'm coming after you, a sorcerer. There are all kinds of sorcerers and diviners back then, just like we see today, you know. Get your, get your fortune tellers, tarot cards, Ouija boards, anything. There's people actually worshiping the occult, people who are giving themselves over to Satan. God doesn't look at that neutrally. That's why even things, and I'll be careful here, but even Harry Potter, who uses what many would consider the neutral you know, amoral idea of witchcraft as sort of the, the framework. And I'm not a beating up on Harry Potter, but think about that. If God says witchcraft is an abomination, you know, we probably ought to think a little bit before we say, well, well, this is good witchcraft, or, you know, there's positive things to it, or we're just into Wicca. Okay, God says, these are the things that I will come against. Secondly, he goes, I'm coming against the adulterers. We saw back in chapter 2, men were just divorcing their wives so they could trade them in for another woman, right? And, and man, you think about American culture right now, the sexual, quote, liberty that's going on, the perversions going on. Colossians 3.5 says this, if you're a Christian, put to death immorality, impurity, because it is on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming on all the sons of disobedience. So God doesn't say, hey, if, if you're a Christian, you got your hell insurance, you could sleep around. Nor does he say, you could be a Christian and continue to live as a practicing homosexual, or just live with your girlfriend, or you can just commit adultery. It's no big deal to God. God says, sexual sin is bringing my judgment. Now, this doesn't mean if you're a Christian and if you've done this, he's going to put you in hell, but it means he wants you to repent. Don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says? Men if you're, or women, if you're addicted to porn, you're looking at porn and, and any of these things, God's calling you. He's purifying you. He's convicting you and saying, I want to change you. I want to help you. And, and please, don't feel like you're the only struggler. There's lots of support here for people that are struggling with sexual sin. Then he says, I'm coming against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages. Now he's going to talk about how you treat other people. Okay? You know, it's tough. I mean, we, we, we ride over to Trenton. We see the guy there with his sign, we'll work for food. And, and we sort of, you know, are torn between handing him $20 and saying, it's probably a scam. Why don't you give him a, go get a job, pal, right? But, but, but the bigger framework here is to think about this, that God cares how we treat hurting people, the poor, the oppressed, those who are in need. And that's part of the mark of what it looks like to be a follower. He goes, 
I'm coming against those who oppress the wage earner. In other words, it was very common back then. People got paid daily, and they lived on that one day. You know, give us this day our daily bread. Imagine being told, I'm not paying you today. Well, I'll, what are you going to do about it? Right? Think that doesn't go on today? Against those who oppress the widow, the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. So, so even, uh, you ready for this? What's your view of immigration? Like them stinking people coming into our land and taking all our jobs, not paying their taxes. And I'm not throwing this blanket thing saying, you know, let's just throw the gates open. But the Old Testament talked about how to treat people who came into your land and to just discard them as worthless, you know, what are these scumbags doing in my land is not a Christian attitude. Okay, I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be much reform. But why do they do this? Why do people treat people so badly? Why do people sleep around when they know God says not to? Why are we tempted to do these things? It's very simple. Look at the end of the verse, verse 5. Here's why. Because they don't fear me. I mean, at the end of the day, that's usually what it comes down to. Because I really don't care, and I'm not afraid of the consequences. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, right? To orient your life and say, I don't really care what other people think. My first question is, what does God think about this? And people are not born by nature God-fearers. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says, or chapter 3 says, no one seeks after God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So one of the things I really want to encourage you to pray, we need to pray for this as a church, that people would come under the conviction of sin and begin to develop a healthy respect for God. This isn't a terror that he's, going to, that he's going to throw lightning bolts, but this is something that we're teaching our children, that they need to think that God sees everything. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're doing. He knows what we're planning. And so we develop this healthy mindset that says, that frames my decisions. And Jesus wants this to happen. He said, I'll send the Holy Spirit and he will convict the world of sin. Because when people start feeling uncomfortable about their sin and they're wounded at Mount Sinai, then they want to hear about Mount Calvary. But why do I want to have a savior if I don't fear God, right? But when people realize, hey, you're in trouble with God. He's mad about your sin, but he loves you and he offers Calvary as your forgiveness. Then people stream to the cross. But then comes a really comforting verse. God says, but here's the good news. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, don't change. And at first you go, okay, well, that's good, right? Because people can be so moody, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm married to a moody person, or I'm moody, or you know women, or whatever. You know, the things people say about moody, or, you, you know, I'm, listen, if you're a moody person, we're all moody. It's just levels of degree. But God says, I don't change. I'm not like you, okay? And, and there's a lot of aspects about this, what's called the immutability of God, that are interesting. We sing about it. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, there is no shadow of turning with thee. But in this context, the reason God says, I don't change, is really comforting, because look what he says. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. See what he's saying here? He's gone, years ago, I made a covenant 
with Abraham, your father, to love your people forever, to be merciful and bless them. The way you're behaving right now, you deserve for me to smack you down immediately. But I'm not like you. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you're not consumed. Does anybody beside me go, I'm glad the Bible has verses like that. I'm glad the Bible has verses like this in, in, in the book of Lamentations. The Lord's mercies are new every day. Great is his faithfulness. So I don't want you to get this view of God that he's up there burning with anger toward Christians. That never happens. Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins. He said, is it, it's finished. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we can go, wow, man, God's anger, you don't want to mess with him, but God's merciful if you come with a humble heart. And that's a blessing because if God changed, I wouldn't be standing up here. I'm sure I'd be six feet under pushing up daisies if God gave us what we deserved, right? So that's a beautiful verse. God's unchanging love for you. He doesn't, you make me here going, man, I am messed up. I am, I don't trust him. I have an, he hasn't changed in his love for you. He doesn't go, I'm unfriending you on Facebook. He loves you. And if you're a child of God, he will continually love you forever and that'll never change. Cling to that. That's the only certain reality we have is that God will never stop loving us. Your spouse might, your kids might, your parents might, your church members might, but God will never, ever change in his love for you. Now, God has one more issue with him. He says, we need to talk about something else. We need to talk about your money. And you might say, oh, here we go again. Churches always talk about money. We don't always talk about money, but if the Bible talks about money, we're going to talk about it. So look what God says. And again, look how blind they are. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes. You haven't kept them. God's going, you haven't kept my word. So he says, return to me. Now, if, if, if God came down to you and he said, I want you to return to me, I would hope that you would go, I think he must think I, I'm, I'm far from him, right? But look what they say. How shall we return? What do you mean return to you? What do we need to return for? We're your people, God. We go to church. And he goes, eh. So, so here's the thing. It's natural to wander from God. Don't ever forget that. You don't even have to practice that. That'll come just as natural as breathing. Songwriter said it this way. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And if you don't pay attention to your relationship with Christ, I know it from my own experience, it's easy to start moving away from God. And you'll never get a note from God that says, please make a note of my new address. If he calls you back to him, he's never moved, right? But this is a, a, a theme throughout the Bible, draw near to God, return to me. And so we always have to be monitoring our hearts and going, I stopped reading my Bible, I haven't been praying I haven't really been seeking God. He hasn't, Jesus hasn't been a priority in my life. God doesn't go, I hate you. He goes, return to me. And they're going, well, in what way? Now, he could have pointed out a number of ways. He goes, in your giving. Verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? And you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. He said, I didn't make that optional. When I came into covenant with you, I commanded you, give me 10% of your increase. 
and you're not doing it. And this is really interesting that he calls it robbing him. Have you ever thought about that? But think about why he says it's robbing him. Because if you think about it, it's his money. That's the whole problem. We get paid. We worked hard. We go, it's my money. And if I have something left over, I'll give him some. But sorry, God, you didn't get some the last couple months. Times are tough. Or, I, you know, I needed that new... Remember the skit? You know, I had to buy something I couldn't afford, right? So God goes, if you're a follower of me and you're not giving, you're robbing me. The Bible says, honor the Lord with the first fruits of your giving, not, oh, if I have anything left over. And what happens is, is when we don't give, the Bible says, this New Testament, Old Testament, if you're stingy with God, he's going to give you consequences. He says, If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you give generously to God, he will take care of you in abundant ways. So look what he says. He goes, think about what's going on right now. You don't have much money, do you? Your crops are in terrible condition. You're starving for food. You can't make ends meet. He goes, I'll tell you why. Because you're not giving. Look what he says. Verse 9, you're cursed with a curse. You're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. See, they actually had a place where... The people would bring the tithes of their produce, the tithes of animals and so forth, and they would store it, grain and so forth, because that was how the priests were fed. That is how they had financial aid to keep the temple, finances so that they could put on the sacrifices and the festivals. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, it says, because the people weren't tithing, the priests had to leave the priesthood so they could work in the farms. Now, how do you think God felt about that? I want my glorious temple to be the center of the people's worship but the priests can't even make a living because the people aren't giving now we're not saying give give so we can drive bmws and mercedes god doesn't want we don't want your money this is what god says right and so he says if you start giving i love this verse bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and test me in this says the lord of hosts If I won't open for you the windows of heaven and I'll pour out for you a blessing until there's no more need. Then I will rebuke the devourer so that may not destroy the fruits of the ground. In other words, locusts, weevils were killing all their crops. And God goes, you start giving to me, I'll stop the locusts. And and I'll pour out rain and I'll pour out blessing. And before you know it, you're going to be blessed. And then he says in verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed. For you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I want to stop here and just draw out a couple thoughts for us. You say, well, that was those people back then. And what's this have to do with us? Well, here's a couple things. What you think about this morning? Are you or have you ever questioned God's fairness? Have you ever wondered, why me, God? Have you ever felt secretly envious of someone else's prosperity? Have you ever wondered that maybe God isn't fair or maybe wanted him to judge others? Why are you letting him get away with that? I'm going to say two quick things about that. Number one, it's not entirely wrong to question God about the way life is unfolding. In fact, I want to recommend two Psalms. Write these down. Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. Especially Psalm 73. That's a great psalm. Asaph wrestles with God. This is what he says to God. He goes, God, I've kept myself pure, 
and all day long you beat me down. Meanwhile, my godless friends are happy and prospering. And he goes, and I don't get it. And so there's a right way to bring that to God. In Psalm 73, you'll love it. You'll love the ending. It's so striking how he, how he worked through that. But it's okay. But just be cautious. Because don't be arrogant. We come with a humble spirit like, Lord, I don't understand. But it's okay to question. Just like Jesus when he said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But don't expect that he has to give you just the right answer or suddenly have to bless you. Do it the right way. Secondly, recognize that God's number one goal isn't my happiness. So Jesus is sitting as a purifier. So he's really wanting me and you to change, okay? And frankly, even the term purifier sounds like it hurts, right? So you can, if you're a Christian, you can continue to fight against God and you're going, I don't want to stop doing that. Or I'm not going to do that. I don't care if God wants me to do that. I'm not going to do that. If you're a Christian, that's just a, a crazy way to live. Hebrews 12 says, all of God's children, he disciplines us so that we'll share in his holiness. So some of you, he's testing you. You're going through hard times and you're in pain and you're going, God, why are you doing this? He's not mad at you. He's purifying you. He's changing you and me. And there's things in my life, I'm like, God, why? And then I remember, because ultimately, these are how I become like Jesus. And we can talk to one another about that. And we we don't all have to be going, how are you doing? Fine. Oh, I'm great. We can say, hey, I'm struggling. I need prayer. I thank God for other Christians. That's why we want you to get connected with small groups and be real with people and say, I'm struggling with my sin. I'm struggling with my attitudes. I'm upset with God. Would you pray for me? But just remember that he's purifying us as a church. And cooperate with him. Because 2 Corinthians 7 says this. Since God has given us these wonderful promises. This is a great memory verse, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these wonderful promises, let us purify ourselves of everything that defiles our flesh and spirit. And let's complete our holiness in the fear of God. In other words, take your Christian life seriously. Seek to grow, pray, change. Allow God to have control of your life. And then real quick, Rob, would you put up here, let me just remind you the giving ladder. Remember we talked about this quite a while ago? Remember I said the average Christian in Bible preaching churches gives nothing? We're not trying to get money for our church. We're talking about if you're a Christian, if you give nothing to God and you're a Christian, you're robbing God. And God has an issue with you. And maybe you give occasionally, and you go, you know, if I have a little something left over, you know, the old man in the sky, I throw him a couple bucks. That's a terrible way to look at giving. If you have an income, the Bible says, honor the Lord with the first fruits. You decide that you're going to give to God first. Right? Don't go, oh, I can't afford to give to God. If you're a Christian, you can't afford not to. And then I'd encourage you to try to be intentional and consistent. You know, in other words, look at your income and make a decision, we're going to regularly give this much. You know, we deceive ourselves. If you don't keep any records of what you give, I could probably assure you, you give a lot less than you think you do. Right? So think about, how much do I make and how much am I giving And could we increase that sum? And then, what would it look like if I I tried tithing? 
Well, let me tell you this. I've never met anyone who said, yeah, I tried that test from Malachi, and I started tithing, and it doesn't work, right? So I would encourage you to pray and move toward a tithe. God's not commanding a tithe, but I'm telling you, you will see the hand of God at work, and this is part of your Christian faith. And if Christians in America tithed, right, things would be so different. We could support so much more ministry. And then particularly, you know, some people flatter themselves that they give a tithe. If you're making half a million bucks, don't flatter yourself that a tithe is some extravagant gift to God. Many of us can afford to give more than a tithe. And I really want to encourage you, don't go, all right, do I have to tithe? Imagine Peter saying to Jesus, does it have to be from my, my gross profit? And Jesus looks at the fish and he goes, tithe from your net. You know, it's like, do we always have to nitpick? You know, am I going to get a tax return? Do I get two cents back? Be extravagant. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, and you will find that you'll be blessed. And then lastly, I'm really thankful for two, two verses in this passage. Number one, Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Malachi makes me uncomfortable. I have to be honest. I'm like, come on, Malachi. He just slaps me around, and I'm like, that makes me feel guilty. And then I go, yes, but Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. So picture and remember, Jesus said, I shed my blood for your forgiveness. You're forgiven. Okay? He's not punishing you. He loves you. And secondly, he doesn't change. He's not done with you. He's not going, I'm finished with you. You people are a mess. He'll take you right where you are. But will you surrender to him and yield to him and let him purify and make you all that you could become for Christ? And if you're not ready to meet him, please don't leave until you talk to someone, somebody who invited you or give us your name and number. We want to follow up. We want to help you to know how you can meet Christ and know that your sins are forgiven. If you're not sure of that, you're crazy. You're crazy to go, oh, I'll try to figure that out some other time. While you're here, we can talk to you about how you can receive Christ and be forgiven today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for Jesus. He's our hope and our comforter. Help us to love him, and thank you for your patience in refining us. Lord, we want to grow. We want to we want to give, we want to show love, we want to serve. So please forgive us, Lord Jesus, messenger of the new covenant. Thank you that you don't change. And I pray that more and more people will come to the foot of the cross in the fear of the Lord, and they will believe the gospel, that they will believe that you died and forgave them completely at the cross. And may our church continue to grow as we become growing disciples advancing the gospel. Thank you for the power of the Spirit at work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy the picnic. We have plenty of hot dogs. I'll be frank with you. There's plenty out there. <laughs> Try to meet some new folks while you're out there. Introduce yourself and meet some new folks. <laughs>